Well, have you ever uh, read through the whole Bible from cover to cover? Or you, you, if you haven't done the whole thing, have you spent much time in the Old Testament? There's even kind of the first five books of the Old Testament are referred to as the Torah, or also the, the Pentateuch is another way uh, that they're referenced. And uh, in those five books, we have, amongst other things, we receive the Old Testament law. And if you've spent any time in that passage, uh, that, that part of the Bible, um, chances are you've come away with some questions. I mean, there are some laws in there that when you read them, you're like, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with this. Even if you say, I, I want to honor God with my, my choices and with the decisions I make, but I'm, I'm just not sure how to make sense of some of these, uh, you're not alone. There are some difficult passages to deal with. All in all, the Torah... Uh, has 613 total laws. Let me give you an example of some of the laws that are in there. Deuteronomy 22, verse 9 through 11 says this. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown, and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So if anyone else is in the same boat I am, we can go back and we can return the donkey to go get another ox so they can both plow together. And then you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. There's actually another, uh, another law in Leviticus that says you shouldn't wear a blend of fabrics in your clothing. And so you look at these and you're like, okay, well, is this really laws, commands of God that we're meant to and expected to obey. These things that we should live out in our lives. And you can look through uh, Exodus chapter 34, and all of a sudden you get to this verse that talks about how you don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. And so if you have a, a smoking recipe for dinner that involves taking a goat and you're boiling it in its mother's milk, okay, we can see Exodus 34 has some things to say against that. No, we don't do that. Leviticus chapter 11 has all kinds of dietary laws. And before you get nervous about what some of those are, uh, you'd be happy to know that locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers are still on the menu. They're okay. You can eat those. Those are not restricted. But any other four-footed winged insect is restricted according to Old Testament dietary laws. They would also restrict um, any seafood that doesn't have fins or scales. It's just, no, we, we don't do that. And so that's also restricted. And, and then probably the, one of the most confusing ones to me is no pork, no bacon. So bacon is right out when it comes to the dietary laws that you see in the Old Testament. And I think one of the things that makes these so challenging at times is because these laws are found in and amongst many other laws that are, are less confusing. Other laws that we would see common sense in. Other laws that we would see, okay, well, this is stuff that would apply today too, right? We see things like the Ten Commandments. You see that in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy 5. If you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, we, we see that uh, it's basically commands on how to live in relationship to God and how to live in relationship to others and some real straightforward commands. We see other commands throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the Old Testament law, that instruct us how to love and how to live with one another and how to care for one another and how, what do we do when we wrong someone and how, what's the repercussions that should take place as a result. We also see other sacrificial laws that were set up uh, in the Old Testament where when the people of God would sin against God, they would go against the word of God, the law of God, they would have to make amends for it by offering uh, a lamb or a dove, different animals they'd offer as sacrifice to the temple, and that animal's blood would be shed, its life would be taken, and that would be uh, taking the place of them for their sin. And so in essence, it would, that, that animal would be a, a sacrifice, a, a substitutionary sacrifice for their sin. 
And so you look at all these, okay, these are all mixed together. And we need, I need to cost you, because sometimes what people will do is they'll defend their stance by proclaiming one and ignoring the other. Now, it's not just that easy. We're going we're to see that there's some difficult ways to kind of navigate through this. Um, but let me give an example of that. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27 and 28 says this, You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourself. I am the Lord. Rarely do you see someone who is protesting tattoos also protesting haircuts. You just don't see it. They say, oh no, Leviticus you know, 19, you shouldn't get, get tattoos. Okay, what about the uh, trimming your beard? I see you don't have a beard, so you clearly trimmed yours. And, and th- these are ones that, that are one right after the other. So it's one thing you could say, well, the Ten Commandments, were, they're a different part of, of the law, but here, so they're, they're talking about different things. Well, these are one right after the other, and yet you see sometimes when people will take the one and say, well, this supports my stance, and so I'm going to point this one out. Uh, well, let's say on. Let, let's look at it in context. Let's look at the other laws right around it. What do we do with those? How, how do we live that out? Are we expected to live that out? Well, see, this is kind of the heart of, of the series we're in right now called Glad You Asked, where we're trying to address whatever questions you may have. And one of the things I found really interesting this year is we've done a series like this in the past, and... Uh, in the past, a lot of times the questions come in uh, about uh, life and, and how do we do this and is it okay to do that. Um, but a lot of the questions that came in this year are about help me to understand this part of Scripture. Help me understand this aspect of the Bible. And so it's, just, it's really cool as a pastor just to see uh, your heart for understanding the Bible. And see your heart for understanding what God is calling us to. And um, we actually received a, a lot of questions about some of the, the laws in Leviticus. What, what do we do with these laws that, that call us to do some of these crazy things? I mean, can we just pick and choose which ones we want to follow? And if we do, by what grounds do we decide? I think you see two ends of the spectrum. On one end, you see people have a response of, well, this is all outdated stuff from outdated cultures that really has no bearing on, on our life today, so we can just overlook it. We just dismiss it. Whereas those on the other side of the spectrum would say, well, this is God's law, and it reveals uh, what morality is and informs us how to live, and so we should follow it all. To a T. And I would say, well, well, they both, you know, maybe are well-intentioned, they're both wrong. And so really we're asking this question here this morning, what is up with the Old Testament laws? Now if there were some specific ones that you want to see, okay, well why does God call us to not eat insects that are four-footed and winged, except for, you know, locusts, crickets, and and grasshoppers, we're not going to get to that level of, of defining unpacking what those specific ones were about and why God would have said that. Um, but we're looking at just as a whole, what is up with the Old Testament laws? Maybe you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus and you're asking the questions of, as a disciple of Jesus, do I need to follow the laws of the Old Testament? Do I need to follow all of them? Maybe you're here this morning investigating who Jesus is and, and, and all of a sudden you're finding out, well, hang on a second, there's dietary laws to this whole following Jesus thing? You mean I, I might have to give up bacon to follow Jesus? I mean, this is, I, I don't know. if that's, That might be a deal breaker right there. That just might be a deal breaker. Where, where, wherever you're at this morning, I think the first place we need to start and acknowledge as we're looking at uh, spending some time in the Old Testament and, and acknowledging just uh, that that is the same God as we see in the New Testament. It's not two different gods engaging with two different people groups and, and, and they're completely different and separate, but this is the same God in the Old Testament as we see in the New Testament. 
And so learning more about his word helps us to learn more about him and about his heart and helps us then to relate to God. And so then we also need to start with the, the truth that all scripture is significant. All scripture is useful. All scripture is profitable. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, tells us this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I just let me see that, that the heart behind this, that God's word is useful for all these different things so that we could be equipped for every good work. And so we can't be too quick to just toss out the Old Testament laws, right? Because we see all Scripture has use. But still, how do we make sense of it? What is up with the Old Testament laws? Well, see, one more challenge to the Old Testament laws is that they all have a different purpose in kind of the area that they cover. Now, we don't see this differentiation in Scripture. Scripture doesn't lay out, okay, here are the moral laws, and boom, 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 and here are the ceremonial laws, and we we don't see that differentiation, partly because uh, in the eyes of of Israel, the people of God who uh, these laws were were given to, were given through, uh, in their eyes, all all these were just, this is what daily life looks like, and so they kind of lumped them all together. But as we see, okay, that there is a difference between them. You see moral laws that God has given to his people. This are laws like the Ten Commandments would fall into this category, ones that were established through Moses after God frees the Israelites from Egypt. They're in slavery in Egypt, and then they're freed from there, and then uh, God gives them his law. This, this, these moral laws, do not uh, commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder, uh, do not you know, bear false witness. You see all, all these kinds of laws. But you also see uh, his civil law given to the nation of Israel where it's, it's these things that instruct them about how to live. These are things like some of the dietary laws. Um, what do you do when you offend someone else, when you wrong someone else? How do you make that right? What do we do in the, in the realms of crime and, and punishment? What does that look like? And so you see those kinds of laws. See, Israel was a theocracy. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a president. They didn't have a prime minister. They had God. And there actually comes a point in their history where they look at all the other surrounding uh, uh, kingdoms and they say, hey, they all have a king. We want a king. And God's like, no, you don't want a king. He's going to tax it. He's going to send your people off to war. You, you don't want a king. And like, no, we want a king. And eventually God said, all right, well, if that's what you want, that's what we'll give you. And that uh, leads into a whole other uh, stage of history in the life of Israel. Uh, but at this point in history, when they first received the law, they're a theocracy. God was their king. He was their president. He was their leader. So you have the moral law, you have the civil law. You also saw a ceremonial law given to his children. You saw this uh, concerning whether or not you were clean or unclean, whether or not you're able to take a, a part in the worship at the temple. I see about things with, with sacrifices, where when you sinned this way or that, what sacrifice would you have to bring to the temple? Was it a lamb or a dove, and how would you offer that? You had, you had laws and, and uh, guidelines like that. So around this ceremonial law. And what's interesting, as you look through all three of these, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, you see a common thread. And this is where I really want you to get here this morning. Whatever you walk away with, I want you to at least walk away with this truth. We're going to keep building upon it. It's this common thread throughout all the law that we receive. Even as we move past the Old Testament into the New Testament, just see all the commands of God, it's this truth. That holiness matters to God. Holiness matters to God. 
See, God's people, the Israelites, were, were called to be set apart. That's, that's one way you could define what does it mean to be holy. It means set apart. So when Israel began, God uh, went to Abraham and basically said, I- I'm going to create a nation through you. and Your offspring will be so numerous, you'll, you'll be uh, um, you're this massive nation. And I'm going to bless all people through you. Through your lineage, all people in the world will be blessed. And we see that come to fruition in, in Jesus. Jesus was from the line of Abraham. And so God makes these promises. He chooses Israel to be his people through which he's going to reveal himself to all men. And because of this, they're called to be holy. They're called to be set apart from all the surrounding nations, okay? You're going to be different than everyone else because I'm going to do something in and through you for the sake of the world. And there's verses all throughout Scripture we can look at that unpack this truth about God's people being a holy people. One of them we're going to look at here this morning is Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now that you begin to understand some of why we're called to be holy. You will be holy because I'm holy is what God says. This is who I am and, and, and I, this is how I've made you to be. I've created you in my image and so you are called to be holy. And because of that, you'll be set apart from everyone else. You'll be different from everyone else. Because holiness matters to God because God is holy. God is holy. But to here is where some of the conflict begins to creep in. Yes, we're made in the image of God. Yes, we're made to be holy. Yes, we're made as image bearers. But we're not holy. We mess up. We fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned in some way or another. We've all broken a command of God, whether small or large. And unfortunately, we all have this sin nature that at some point or another chooses disobedience. But see, but because holiness matters to God, he gives us a law. And the law is to serve as a path to righteousness. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. You're going to pop up on the screen here in a minute if you're not familiar with them. As you look through the Ten Commandments, there's actually a gap there between four or five. And it's not because there's a 4.5 law, but it's because there's a differentiation between the first four and the last six. The first four have this theme about how do we relate to God? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. These all instruct us about how to engage with a God and be in our relationship with him. And then the last six show us how do we interact with others, right? Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You can see all these things that were, okay, here's how we interact and engage with other people. It's instructing us about how to live and how to relate with God and others. It's leading us on a path of righteousness. But see, here's where the law falls short. Ultimately, the law is unable to make us righteous. It's unable to make us righteous. See, Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, his being God's. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the law informs us of the ways that we've fallen short of the holiness that God has called us to. It's almost as if the more that we know, the more that we learn, the more we discover how we're falling short. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So when I was growing up, um, 
I'm not really proud of this, but um, I had a specific driving style that led me to a certain uh, kind of running tally that I had. I also had an innate ability to sweet talk my way out of most anything. And so uh, it wasn't until my 13th time getting pulled over that I got my first ticket. And um, for a split second, I'm like, hey, I found the yacht one. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's not good. And, uh, but I, I was just able to talk my way out of them. And I just, I, you know, it was everything from speeding to rolling through a stop sign to spinning my tires, you know, and um, just drive like a goofball. And I, I've grown, and um, so I, I don't drive that way now. At least I like to think I don't. Um, but there came a point in my life where um, I'm with my wife, I'm with another couple, and we, we just finished up on a date. And I pull out of a parking lot, and... Uh, next thing I know, I'm getting pulled over. And I was ecstatic. I truly, genuinely was ecstatic. Because every other time I got pulled over, I knew exactly why I was getting pulled over. What was the first question I was going to be asked? Excuse me, sir. Do you know why I pulled you over? And every time when I was younger, it was, it was, it was a, a, a challenge to my integrity, and I failed. No, I don't know. Did you see me speeding? Did you see me? It was, it was almost like a question of, well, if I don't admit it, then, you know. But so at this point in my life, I, I had grown, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to be honest. But the, the great part is, I can honestly say I have no idea. I, I, I was like smiling. She pulls me over. It's like, excuse me, sir, do you know why, you pulled me, why I pulled you over? I'm like, nope, no idea. I wasn't speeding. I used my turn signal. My headlights all work. Um, my, my license plate is, is, is up to date. I mean, everything I, I knew was good. I knew I was in the good. She says, well, you don't have a front license plate on your car. I said, well, I have it here under my seat. And I'm like, I'm going to reach under my seat. I, I, I informed her of all that because I didn't want to just reach in. Hey, you know, um, that would have been a whole other story. Um, but uh, so but, well, I have it. And she's like, well, yeah, it needs to be on the car. I'm like, well, I didn't know that. And she's like, well, that's okay. We'll give you grace and, and we'll just give you a warning. And so there was no ticket with that one. And I was able to go on my way and I eventually put it on the front of my car. But see, I didn't know that I was breaking the law. And the cop didn't pull me over to say, oh, by the way, nice driving. You're doing a good job. You know, you, you didn't speed. You know, she pulled me over and said, let me show you how you're breaking the law. And, and the, God, the, the law of God is, is similar. It's unable to provide salvation. It's unable to provide freedom from sin. If anything, it just reveals our need for a Savior, right? Because it reveals the fact that we have sinned. So what do we do with this? So God calls us to be holy. Holiness matters to him. He gives us the law. And he sees that the law just really shows us that we've fallen short. But God loves us. So what does God do? He gave. God gives us Jesus. He sent us Jesus so that when we place our faith in him, in the same way that in the Old Testament days, uh, God's people would, would say, okay, I've sinned against you, God, so here's this sacrificial lamb. Instead of my blood being shed, instead of my life being taken, this lamb's life will be taken. His blood will be shed. In that same fashion, Jesus came, lived a perfect life. So he was that pure, spotless lamb, laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for us. So that when we trust in him, we say, Jesus, I believe you are God. I believe you are Lord and Savior. Uh, when we take that step, he pays the price for our sin, and we're forgiven, and we're wiped clean, and he paid the price for all of that. And the story continues, but he doesn't just die and, and, and pay that price for us. But on the third day, he rose again, ultimately defeating death. So there is freedom from sin. It was finally a sufficient sacrifice that puts an end to all of that. And so God gives us salvation in Jesus. Galatians 2.16 tells us this. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, in Jesus, justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, so, so the law isn't what's going to justify. It, it, it's Jesus that we're going to be justified, our faith in him. See, because we've all sinned, no one can be good enough. We can't say, okay, well, but I've, I've taken care of most of the laws. Imagine when I got pulled over if I said, you know, well, yeah, you got me for speeding, but I, I obeyed all the other laws. Oh, okay, by all means, go on your way. Well, no, because you broke this one, so this is one we're dealing with. Our good works will not bring about salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. It's always been this way. It's always been through faith in God. We see this even in, before Jesus walked the earth uh, as a man and as God. Um, we see Romans 4, 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham was seen as righteous because he believed the promises of God. God said, I'll make a nation through you. I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all people through you. He believed God and he obeyed God. That was credited to him as righteousness. So we believe that Jesus is God and trust in him. It's credited to us as righteousness. God sent Jesus so that through him we could become holy because holiness matters to God. So what does this mean about the law? Well, see, Jesus is the end of the law. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Uh, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the them there is, is reference to Israel, is that, the, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul's talking to a Gentile crowd about the Jews. He's basically saying, hey, they, they tried to get righteousness simply by following all the laws, but they missed it. Uh, the, the law wasn't meant to be salvation. The law was meant to be a path to righteousness. The, the law was supposed to be uh, uh, pointing them to something. And that something is Jesus. We see in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven. This is why uh, a Jew who doesn't trust in Jesus would still feel the need to follow the Old Testament laws because they would say, okay, well, I still have sin that's undealt with, and so I need to offer sacrifices. And so you actually saw that in the early church where the, the, the Jews with Jesus and without Jesus and, and the Gentiles, and they're all like, how do we move forward in light of this Jesus stuff. You can look at the, the word that translates there to for Christ is the end. Another way we can look at it is uh, for Christ is the goal of the law. So the law is a path that leads to Jesus as the goal. So let's ask the question. So does a Christian have to follow these Old Testament laws? Do we have to follow those Old Testament laws? No-ish? What do you think? Where, where, where are we at with this? I mean, the answer is that uh, the laws still exist, but everything changes with Jesus. Everything changes with Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus. See, after Jesus, 
There's no longer a need when you trust in him for salvation. There's no longer a need for the sacrifices, right? You don't need to go find a lamb to, to, to offer at the temple to be, sacri- to be sacrificed for your sin because Jesus paid that price. And so all those laws that would be about the sacrificial system, they've been fulfilled. So you say, okay, well, I need to make sure I do this. Well, no, you don't because Jesus fulfilled that. It's not that it's gone, it's that it's satisfied. You look at some of the ceremonial laws that talk about are we clean or unclean, and when we're unclean, you know, we had certain ramifications and all that. But now we are clean in Jesus. We are seen as righteous. We are seen as holy when we trust in Jesus. So now all those ceremonial laws that would lead us to uh, cleanliness, when we're clean and when we're unclean, those can go away because they're fully fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus didn't remove the law he satisfied it matthew 5 17 do not think that i have come these are the words of jesus do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them you see the early church was asking the same questions we're asking today what do we do with these old laws i'm not sure how we we, you know everything's different now because what would happen is you'd have jews who would see Jesus, and they would trust in him as the Messiah, as their Savior, and they would place their faith in him, and they'd be forgiven of their sins, and they'd now be a Christ follower. And what would they do tomorrow? They would go and keep doing Jewish things. They wouldn't eat bacon. They, they, they uh, you know, would follow the laws that they were raised up on following, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws. Um, they would have their kids, uh, or they, they, as a young adult, they would have their young adults circumcised, and they'd go through all these different processes. And you could see why this would be a point of conflict where you now have Gentiles. Because see, when Jesus came, he brought an end to the exclusivity of Israel as the people of God. Now we see really that God was for all people, not just for Israel. He was uh, uh, sharing the message of the gospel through Israel, but for all people, right? And so the gospel is for all people. And so the Gentiles, who's just basically someone who's not Jewish, they can come to Christ as well. They can be forgiven. We can be forgiven in Christ. He's for all people. So what do we do then? When we place our faith in Jesus, do we then have to go and follow these Jewish laws? And that was the battle that they were having. That was the conflict that was going on. You can imagine, especially uh, any gentleman older in their, their years who was a Gentile and then all of a sudden became a follower of Christ and all of a sudden is with these uh, Jews who are also followers of Christ and all of a sudden the Jews are saying, hey, by the way, we have a little procedure we need you to go through. It'll just take a moment. We just need a quick little snip. Uh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I didn't sign up for these Jewish things. I'm just following Jesus. But we see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, how uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, it's for nothing. We're a new creation in Christ. And so, gentlemen, if, you, if you're sitting there and you've ever wondered, hey, I, I'm not sure how this all plays into holiness, you know, whether you're circumcised or not, it doesn't matter. We are a new creation in Jesus there are food laws they fought over. you got to imagine the first potluck they had. You know? Well, the Gentile is like, hey, I have an awesome, awesome ham sandwich. It's real simple. I'll bring it out. You know, and hey, no one ate my ham sandwiches. I'm offended. You know, it's, there was tension in there. What do we do? Well, in Acts chapter 10, we see uh, Peter has a vision from the Lord where the Lord calls all food clean. So can we eat things that even the Old Testament laws will say we can't? I would say yes, because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, we still need to be wise about it. 
If you're trying to go share Jesus with your Jewish friend, don't bring a BLT and, and say, let's, let's have a sandwich and break bread and talk about Jesus. Because you're, you're going to be probably offending them. The same way that if you know someone who struggles with alcohol, you're not going to say, let's go have a beer at the bar and talk about Jesus. Is it wrong to drink beer? No. But are, are you helping your brother or sister in Christ if that's how you're going to treat it? Then no, you're not. So you need to be wise with it as well. They argued about the Sabbath. There are laws around, okay, we need a day of rest. You've got to prepare for it so that you do nothing on that day. And so there are all these different things that they're like, oh, I'm not sure how to move forward in this. See, the, the law of God uh, in the Old Testament was like a guardian uh, for Israel, to keep Israel separate from all those that were, they were around. But it was no longer necessary with Jesus. It, it's kind of like this. To impose those laws on the Gentiles is like someone saying, here's a package I have. I want to give it to you to guard until I come back. And that guardian says, okay, I'm guarding this package. And then all of a sudden, the owner comes and takes it and, and says, okay, you're done, you're good to go, your role's been fulfilled, I'm taking my package and I'm, I'm moving on. And then all of a sudden, what do you do? You get another guard to guard the package that's not there anymore. That's what it's like trying to impose those Old Testament laws upon a, a, a Gentile. Galatians 3, 23-26, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So let's ask the question. Does a disciple of Jesus need to follow the Old Testament laws? I think we can answer no. Now hopefully you feel tension in that. Because on one hand, there's those laws like, oh yeah, not a problem. We can trim our beards and cut our hair and we can wear clothes of, of, of mixed fabric. But then there's other laws, okay, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Does that mean we don't have to follow those? I think sometimes people try to go there. But it's not a wiping away of the law. It's a fulfillment and a satisfying of the law. So we need to look to the person of Jesus and say, okay, well, what does he say about that? We've already unpacked that a little bit. Okay, well, he, was, he said, okay, all food is good now. Okay, so the dietary laws have been fulfilled in that way. Well, you, you know, the Old Testament says, do not murder. What does Jesus say about that? What's the fulfillment of that? And he says, well, you've heard it said, do not murder. I would say, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Oh, okay, so Jesus just took that one up a notch. So sure, it's fulfilled in him, but he's calling us to now not only uh, be holy in our actions, but be holy in our heart. So how should we live? Well, Romans 6.15 says this, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Okay, so God loves us, he's offered us Jesus, and so we can trust in him, and we are made righteous, so does that mean we can go do whatever the heck we want? By no means, Paul would say. By no means. Holiness matters to God. Let us strive to live a holy life in Christ. Let us strive to live a holy life in Christ. See, some of us, uh, some people out there would say that since we're made holy in Jesus, we're free to go do anything. And some things I think we're, we all agree are pretty obvious. Oh, you're not free to go knock off a liquor store just because you're forgiven in Jesus. But there's other things a little more subtle that I think we encourage in each other's lives that really don't honor God. And it falls a lot of times under this heading of, well, does it make you happy? Oh, oh then go do it. And we encourage it. Oh, no, you're, you're forgiven. And, you know, so even if it's all, you know, oh, hey, if it makes you happy, go do it. 
see, our happiness, I don't think, is God's number one priority. It might, might be hard to hear, but stick with me on this. I think God is more interested in us being holy than in us being happy. And in that, I think, brings about our joy. I, I don't remember when I learned this or really when I started to implement it, but uh, I got to this point in the life of my kids. I, I had a five-year-old, two-year-old, and a newborn where I want to say yes. Hey, Dad, can I? Yes. I want to be a dad who says yes. Can I get this? Might be a little dangerous. Yes. Hey, Dad, can I go and do this and try this out? Yes, just don't tell your mother. I, I want to be a dad that says yes. But there's some things that I will not say yes to. Hey, Dad, can I play with the table saw? Not yet. Hey, Dad, can I go ride my bike even though there's no one to watch me? I'll just go ride in the busy street. No, you can't. Hey, Dad, can I stay up every night as late as I want? No. Can I eat, you know, candy for dinner? Maybe, maybe just once, I'll join you. But no, not, not every night. I mean, imagine it that way. If your kids ask these questions, we wouldn't say yes to them every single time. We want to say yes. We want them to experience life and have all these good things. We want their joy, but we know that if we say yes to all their happiness, it'll bring about their demise. They'll be tired, worn down, sick. They won't last. And so as a loving parent, we say, hey, these things, they're not for you. Sometimes it's a not right now. Sometimes it's a not in this way. And sometimes, no, not ever. I think dating should fall in that category for dads with girls, but anyway, I'm just teasing. Um, in the same way, God looks at us and is like, hey, I want good things for you. My word is, is to equip you for good works. But sometimes that means we've got to hear no. Even if it's, hey, but this would make me happy. It doesn't mean it's good for us. It doesn't mean it would make us holy. And holiness matters to God. So what next? How do we live? So if we don't just have a free reign to go and live however we want, um, the law has been fulfilled in Christ, how do we go live? Well, again, we have to look to the person of Christ. Any of those Old Testament laws that you're, you're, you're having questions about, we have to say, what would Jesus say about those? We even see this phrase, the law of Christ, in the New Testament. It happens twice, once in 1 Corinthians 9 and once in Galatians 6. And both times, it's in reference to how we can care for others for the sake of the gospel. You see this heart for God and a heart for others communicated in the law of Christ. And this takes me to Matthew 22, where basically the Pharisees are questioning Jesus, and they're saying, hey Jesus, what's the greatest law? And they're really trying to get him to say something that could be uh, taken as blasphemy. They wanted to get him to, to speak against, you know, if you say this is your favorite law, you basically said all these other ones are garbage, right? So that's blasphemy. Let's get rid of you. They're trying to discredit Jesus. But he knows all this, and he's smarter than them. And he says, well, the greatest law is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's all they asked for was, hey, what, what's the, the greatest? He said, let me give you an extra one. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole entirety of the law is summed up in this love god and love others you even see that in the old testament deuteronomy 6 5 we, we see a command to love god in leviticus 19 18 a call to love others as yourself did you ever stop and realize the golden rule is actually biblical treat others as you would treat yourself leviticus 19 18 love others as you would love yourself 
But we see the law of Christ is that we would love God and love others. We see the law of Christ is one where we look at the Old Testament and we see, okay, what is God's heart in this? And that we can go to uh, in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, and the, or the Sermon on the Mount, which starts with the Beatitudes, and then Jesus hits on some things where he says, you've heard it said this, but let me tell you this. And he says, it's not just the actions, but the heart. We need to engage the heart in the things that we do. And so we are free from sin. The law has been satisfied in Jesus. Just let us go live in that reality. Let us go and be a holy people because we are loved by God. We're called to go and love others. We'll leave you with this. 1 Peter 1, 13-16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we prepare to head out from this place, as we prepare ourselves to go on with our week, set your hope fully on the grace that we find in Jesus. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Those old ways that we knew were sin, don't conform to those. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And church, remember this. When you go out from here and you strive to live a holy life, if and when we make a mistake, we do something that God would see is not holy, remember, holiness matters to God. So God sent us Jesus. So that we are seen as righteous and clean when we trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you for uh, who you are. We thank you that holiness matters. Um, we thank you that you provide a way for us to be seen as righteous, Father God, because, man, we, we, we've screwed up in one way or another. Father God, we, we trust in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. We believe that you are God and that your death on the cross was a sufficient price paid to pay for our sins. Maybe in some of us here this morning, Father, who have never trusted in you, the forgiveness of our sins, and if that's you here this morning, I, just, I would ask you to just surrender to God and just say, God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that Jesus is God and his death on the cross paid the price of my sin. And then trust in him all the days moving forward. So Father God, we thank you that there is forgiveness. We thank you that you fulfilled the law. So when we look to some of these Old Testament laws, we can see it's not just our action, but our heart that you're interested in. And some of these other laws that seem a little out there, a little wacky, you can see that you fulfilled those. That no longer is it a question of, am I eating the right thing or wearing the right thing? But we can instead ask a different question of, is how I eat or how I dress, is, is that something that can be used for your glory, Father God, to share you with others as we love you and love others. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing here in and through Meadowland. In your name.